Hello, welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming. And uh, I think y'all gonna like this show. Um, I am getting ready to talk to a man who is identified as the one man think tank. Um, He has written a book called Stuck on the Outside. And that's kind of the short title. Uh, but it talks about, it's kind of autobiographical, uh, but it talks about his struggle uh, to get his ideas not only heard, but credited to him. Uh, he is uh, also a uh, proud MAGA American, as he identifies himself on Twitter. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the book and a little bit about uh, why he is a supporter of the former president. So without further ado, let me introduce to y'all Mr. Herbert Eric Stevens. All right. Hey, Brother Stevens, how are you? Outstanding. Well, that's good. Um, So... I have you on the show for two reasons. So the first reason, of course, is to uh, promote your book, which is Stuck on the Outside. And for my listeners, give me a synopsis of what this book is about. Okay. Um, Let me give you the uh, tagline that I actually have written on the book. back book cover as far as a uh, description of the book. Okay. And then then I'll give you like a real brief synopsis, say like chapter by chapter. Uh, But the tagline says, from the office of a U.S. senator to a tech giant, to Hollywood Network Television, to the Library of Congress, to the floor of the Senate, to the desk of six U.S. presidents, to the auto industry, to the U.S. military, what do they all have in common? They all utilized this one man, the one man think tank, creator of the GPS point to point navigation system in your phone, car, laptop, on your desktop, and any mode of transportation. You got to ask yourself a question. Why is this guy stuck on the outside? Did he really suffer the largest theft of intellectual property in history? you read and decide i need to caution you this book is not for the faint of heart and eric i gotta tell you it is not for the faint of heart so um what do you want readers to get from the book okay many things many many things okay um what it is it is a non-fiction account of uh, personal projects and things in my life that took place. I'm 64 years of age, okay? And um, I would like to literally have the book help cement my place in history, number one, okay? And uh, I would also like to receive all financial remuneration that is due me. The book is an easy read and just like i talk that's how the book reads 
So when you get into the things of technology and what have you, don't think that it's anything that you're not going to be able to stand, understand, pardon me, because all of it you can. Uh, the book begins in like 1978, and I'm on a student exchange in Guatemala. And when I come back to the States, uh, two things that happened. Number one, Minnie Ripperton had just died like four days earlier or something like that. Broke my heart, man. Broke my heart. I understand. <laughs> yeah, right. And then um, they had just taken the hostages in Tehran, okay, uh, with the Ayatollah Khomeini. So I'm listening to the radio and I'm watching the television because down there in 78, 79, you couldn't get any news. So we had no idea what was going on in the United States. Now, you're a political show. What happened to me down there politically was the fact that the Sandinistas were at war with the Contras and it was nothing to, uh, you know, get ready to stand on, you know, to get onto the bus. And there's a guy standing there with an M16. When you'd go to the bank to exchange your currency, you would have to walk in front of a machine gun turret inside the bank. Okay. But Jimmy Carter, who, and I was a Democrat, he was the first president, um, that I actually voted for in 76. When we got off the planes down there, they then handed us as college exchange students a piece of paper, and the piece of paper literally said, okay, if war breaks out between the Sandinistas and the Contras, the U.S. government will not get you out. We had to sign them. That was after we landed there, okay? Mm. I got on the phone, and I was fortunate because I knew one person, if I ever had a problem, they could get me out. And that was, I was in Alpha, and in our graduate chapter was Jesse Owens. So I called up Jesse Owens, I said, Mr. Owens, and I explained it to him. He said, if anything goes off, don't worry, I'll get you out. So when we get back to the States, and I see this thing going on, uh, they literally said, hey, the hostages have been taken, and, you know, if anybody has any ideas, you know, here's a here's a number, a hot number that you can actually call the White House. We 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 need some ideas, and I it's like a lightning bolt to the head, man. It's like I stood straight up and I said, "Well, heck, man, I can figure this out." So I literally called the White House and I said, "You need to do X, Y, and Z." I'm not going to go into it because it's all in the book. And um, you know, I talked to the guy. And he says, "Man, that's a great idea." He says, "We haven't heard anything like that." He said, "We're going to pass it on." I go, "Okay, fine." Right? I hang up the phone. I go on with life. They take it, they shelf it. Eight months later, they bring it out and they do it. Okay? Now, when we get to chapter two, uh, what happens is, I believe it was like um, early 80s, like 83, 84, whatever. Anyway, there was a cruise ship called the Achille Laro. And there was a guy by the name of Klinghoffer who was in a wheelchair, American citizen, and his wife. They were on a cruise. Pirates took the ship hostage, and they took Mr. Klinghoffer in his wheelchair, and they threw him into the sea. Right. Okay? A couple of weeks after that, uh, some terrorists, they hijacked TWA. I think it was flight without looking at notes and everything. I don't know, 874, 478, or whatever. But anyway, there's a Navy guy on there. And this thing goes on for like 11 days. This is underneath Ronald Reagan, right? And it goes on for like 11 days on the 11th day, I think, or whatever it was. But anyway, they shoot the U.S. Navy guy in the head. They dump his body on the on the tarmac, and then they shoot him in the chest. He's already dead. They shoot him in the chest. Man, I stood up and I said, now you pissed me off. 
So I fire off a letter to, Pro to President Ronald Reagan about how the heck the United States needs to start dealing with these terrorists. And that's so what you need to do is you need to put an individual bounty on their heads. And back then, you know, dollars are different then than they are today. You know, and I had suggested like capping it at like $25,000 or whatever. So I send this letter off. So uh, July 23rd that year, I get a letter back, okay? And the letter I get back is from a guy by the name of uh, John Fisher. And he was the president of the then NSA, the National Security Advisor, right? And it basically says, well, you know, we've been getting things from a lot of people. But however, you know, you really do have some good ideas, this and that and the other. But we don't think that foreign countries would, you know, even if we put bounties on their heads, you know, would, you know, would turn their own people over. But, you know, whatever. So they take it, man, and they show it. They show seven years. Then Clinton comes into office, right? Clinton comes into office, all right, and they pull it down. And they use it. You ever hear this thing called Black Hawk Down? Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go. So there's actually a documentary that's uh, on YouTube where they literally have a U.S. Uh, military guy. And he's telling about, you know, all of the uh, military, um, I don't know what to call it, um, procedures. Yeah, the procedures that they use to track the first a warlord in Somalia named Adid. And in the New York Times, a little blurb broke, and it literally said that the U.S. government has put a bounty on the head of Adid for $25,000, like to the friggin' penny, right? So what you can do is you can literally uh, play this um, uh, documentary, and you can take the letter, because in the book, you'll see the letter that I sent to Reagan, and you'll see the letter that came back from Fisher. You can literally take it and you can hold it up and it's like you can see the man's words out of my letter coming right out of his mouth. They literally use those plans to the T, okay? So then we get to chapter three. Chapter three is on the GPS. I am the man who the good Lord gifted the gift of the GPS for me to bring it to the world, okay? Now, there are, uh, not to give a few plugs, but uh, for any of your listeners that want to hear the complete origin of that, there's a radio station that's down here in Florida, WWPR AM 1490. Put that in their Google search engine and click on it. The station will load up and you'll see a thing that says the author's corner. And the, uh, the owner of the station, Valerie Silver, is the only person in the United States that would speak to me on air about any of this, and it took four years to find her. So you'll be able to uh, listen to that interview and you can literally hear the complete origin of it, right? So it talks about how uh, conceptually I came up with the GPS and you know how, how it developed you know, all the way up through how it was stolen at the office of Senator Jay Rockefeller, another Democrat, okay? Now, um, Real quick, let me slide back to um, remember how um, I was saying that uh, Clinton was in office when they did the Black Hawk Down? Right. Right? Okay. All right. So check this out. When we go to Chapter 4, I was actually in the car business at the time. And in 80, I'm sorry, and in um, that at that particular time, I was selling cars, but there was like only 
one new car on the street out of every 10 that were out there because we were in a recession. It's like, no wonder we're in a recession. It's like the thing that moves auto, that moves, the, you know, the country are the automakers. So if cars aren't selling, everything else is suffering, okay? So I sat down and I created this document. So if you've ever heard of buy here, pay here and stuff like that, I'm the guy that created that, right? So the original documents are in the book. So I fired it off and I wrote a handwritten letter. I wrote this whole thing in hand and it shows it in the book. And I sent this off to Lee Iacocca at Chrysler, okay? So Chrysler writes back and they said, yeah, it's pie in the sky. We wouldn't consider using anything like that. Forget about it. Within six months time, Chrysler Corporation, Ford Motor, okay, and GMAC, GMAC, were all been financing used cars with my exact formula, okay, and it, you know, created all the financing to used cars. Now, the one thing about the uh, statement that I read to you, um, you know, about what I have on the back of my book, and that is that as I'm stating here, it's like you read and decide. So this book has over 200 original documents, photos, and everything in it. So when you look at even the things back in Chapter 3 about GPS, I'm the first guy to file a patent application. The actual application is in the book, okay? I'm the first guy to put all of this stuff under retainer at law firms on K Street in D.C. The receipts are in the book. I sat on papers literally for 29 years for this book, and man, I had everything. So, you know, Eric, you know how everybody says, you know, Silicon Valley, they steal this, they steal that, and this yeah. and that and the other? You've heard that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, nobody ever has any proof. Well, I'm the first man to ever come to the table with all the proof, and it's in this book. Okay? So, when we get to Chapter 5, uh, I was watching Oprah one day, okay? And I fired off a letter to Oprah, Bryant Gumbel, and Ross Perot. For those of you who don't remember Ross Perot, he's the one that was running against George Bush 41, uh, which took away the votes and allowed Clinton to get into office. And he said that he had to stop uh, just before the election because the Black Panther Party was on its front lawn. You remember that, Eric? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just hoping I'm not the only guy that remembers that. No, okay. I, I remember well, anyway. it well. <laughs> okay. All right. So what happens is when I get to chapter five, uh, they had had the L.A. riots. You know, Rodney King, why can't we all get along in this and that and the other? So four days after, I'm watching Oprah. And at the end of the show, Oprah literally says, boy, I sure wish somebody could, you know, come up with a plan to revitalize our nation's cities. Boom, there's the lightning bolt to the head again. I stand up, I go, what the heck? I could do that. So I sit down, I do, I do two all-nighters. And I create this document. It's like 24, 25 pages. It's in the book, okay? And I send it off to the Library of Congress to get copyright. Now, for those of you who don't understand what copyright is, back in the day, it used to take six months to get a copyright because they would have to search the world to make sure you didn't plagiarize or you didn't steal it or there's nothing else out there like it, right? Six months, right? So now remember, uh, we're into the 90s now. I think we're in like 94. Eric, man, I sent that document in. <laughs> And the same day they got it, they processed it, they approved it, and they issued copyright on it. Four days, five days, 
maybe six days later, it ends up on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and it's on the 6 o'clock news. Somebody at the, at the Library of Congress sold it out the back door. So when they talk about intellectual property theft and this and that and the other, some of the largest thieves of intellectual property, okay, is the friggin' Library of Congress itself. I know that firsthand, okay? So then when we get to Chapter 6, Chapter 6 is like the fun one in the book. I open it up uh, by bringing in the 19, um, I don't know, the 1990s or whatever, but uh, I had been given by my father-in-law uh, two tickets for my wife at the time and myself to go to uh, watch George Foreman fight Jerry Cooney in Atlantic City. And I don't know if you can remember that, Eric, but they were doing TV commercials for Jerry Cooney and he was going to do this and that and the other. Man, George hit him with a right and that man dropped like a curtain. I ain't right. never seen a man get hit that hard and live. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so in Chapter 6, I talk about a lot of things that took place then, but I also talk about how, um, you know, if, if, you know, nowadays everything is, is race related, but I literally talk about how uh, the police came and uh, held me at gunpoint for robbing my own office. Yeah, uh, just amazing stuff. Okay. Right. So when we get to chapter seven in the book, we then are talking about how um, I actually invented a television game show. Uh, Eric, I'm telling you, man, this is the most prolific mind of the 20th century that you're speaking to today that nobody knows about until now. You're, you're bringing me forth. I appreciate that. And what happened was I created a game show based on facial recognition. So even to today, I own all the rights on any type of gaming that has to deal with facial recognition. So those of you out there who have seen the Steve Harvey show with him putting up faces, talking about who's this or Ellen or Jeopardy or what have you, all of them have stepped on my copyright. Okay. I own the rights until 35, I'm sorry, until 50 years after I'm gone. Any gaming of any type with facial recognition, I'm the guy who invented that. Okay. So, that, and you'll see all the legal papers and you'll see where, uh, there was a, a, a casting director in Philadelphia who I trusted who said the only guy in California who he knew would not steal it because it was amazing uh, was a guy by the name of, uh, oh gosh, what the heck is Glenn's last name? Uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, uh, the guy who he sent, it to, sent me to ended up stealing it anyway. They put it on NBC and I had to get a law firm in Philadelphia to uh, do a cease and desist order. And that was done with uh, Jeffrey Zucker, uh, the one who was with CNN, who they just got rid of. Right. The Jeffrey Zucker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, yeah, he was, um, you know, trying to put my game show on TV. So they changed the name of it from What's Your Best Guest to On the Cover, and they ran it. Okay. And they got one episode off before I shut them down. So then we get to Chapter 8. So chapter eight is really interesting. Chapter eight brings us full circle into my foray into the Trump organization. So when Trump came down the elevator that day, he was making the statement that he was uh, making. And I knew that the alternative was Hillary Clinton. There was no way I was voting for Hillary Clinton because um, the Clinton administration literally took my document 
that was paid for out the back door of the Library of Congress, okay? And out of that document, they made like 11 things, White House executive orders, okay? And then it was moving towards the revitalization of the nation's cities, and they scrapped that and decided to sign the crime bill, which was also uh, sponsored and backed by uh, Joe Biden, and they started locking black men up uh, literally by the hundreds of thousands. That That's was not an exaggeration. Yeah, That's that was the super predator bill, as some people refer to it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, there, and, and also, there's a uh, there's a um, on YouTube. There is a video by this doctor, and her name is Michelle Anderson. And just all you do is go to YouTube and put in Michelle Anderson, uh, University of Chicago. And there's a red background there, so you'll know you have the right one. Man, Eric, if you ever get the chance to listen to that thing, man, it is amazing. She states that due to Reagan's war on drugs and Clinton's crime bill, it has evolved to where a generation of us black men have been so taken off the street and processed into the prisons and what have you, that if today you were to try and get back to the numbers of black men that were incarcerated in 1870, after the Civil War, when they created the 13th Amendment and they started locking us up just for walking down the road, okay, um, you would literally have to today release from prison four out of every five black men that are in prison to get it down to the 1870 number. Most fascinating thing you'll ever see. Okay, so I highly recommend uh, recommend that. All right. So anyway, he comes down the he comes down the escalator and he speaks and I said, man. I fire off an email and the email that I fire off, uh, basically I say, Hey, look, if he really does, you know, uh, need some help with his campaign, uh, send me an email. So about three months go by and I get an email that says, Hey, would you like to come and help out just making phone calls in, um, Conchahawken, Pennsylvania? I'm like, Nope. Then about another month goes by and they say, Hey, would you like to come to, uh, uh, Northern New Jersey and, and help us out in, um, Oh gosh, New Brunswick. And I said, nope. And then two weeks go by and I get a letter, uh, I, I get an email and it says, hey, would you like to come to Trump Tower? And I'm like, now nah, you're talking my language. I'll come to Trump Tower. <laughs> so uh, twice a week mm -hmm, for the last six months of the campaign, I got in my car in New Jersey and I drove to Trump Tower. And when I got there, I worked two days a week and I would work from the moment I got there all the way until closing. Okay. So my son says to me, he says, well, well, Pop, what do you think is going to happen? I said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I said, I'm going to go in here the first day. I said, and by, I said, I'm going to outwork everybody. I said, I guarantee you, son, by the end of the night, they're going to figure out who I am or somebody's going to ask me, what do I know or whatever. So I go in, I sit down, just pick up the phone and I'm making these phone calls, right? You know, hey, would you, you know, support uh, candidate Trump? He'd like to get your vote, this and that and the other, right? All I'm doing, man, I'm just pounding this phone. Eric, I don't take a break. They bring in lunch. I don't eat. I just go bell to bell. So the end of the night, I'm the last one. I hang up the phone, and as I'm walking out the door, the lady, uh, she literally says, um, hey, uh, Eric, um, you know, you seem like you might know something. 
you know, they really could use some help upstairs, you know. If, so if you can come up with any ideas, man, I would greatly appreciate it. I said, well, I'm at the hotel. I said, I'm going to be back tomorrow. I said, I'll let you know. So the next night I go in and I said, okay, I figured it out. Give me a piece of paper. So she hands me a piece of paper and I said, I'll be back in 30 minutes. So I pick up the phone. I start making these calls, making these calls, and I'm doing my graph and my chart. And so I walk over and I hand it to her 30 minutes later. She looks at it and she hands it to the other lady who's next to her. And they both look at each other and they go, oh, my God, we've got to get this stuff upstairs, right? Right now. So they take off and they leave. They go upstairs. I go right back to the phone, man. I'm sitting there making calls. So you know how you can tell, Eric, when somebody's looking over your shoulder? Yeah. You know? Okay. All right. So all of a sudden I feel something. And I turn around and I look and all these suits are standing behind me, right? I'm like, I know what you guys are standing here for. The technology exists. I told you, just go on upstairs and just do your thing, man. And if you do that, it won't be a problem. They go, okay, fine, right? So I come back the next week and they said, oh, by the way, Eric, we changed things. We're now doing it like this, okay? And I'm like, yeah, of course you are, right? So what had happened, I, and I explained this in the book, but I want to explain this here, all right? The goal of making phone calls is to get the candidate's name before those people in the household easy enough to figure out. Right, Eric? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what they were doing is if in the event they got an answering machine, man, they were hanging up. Right? And they only had a penetration rate of 17%. And I simply told them, I said, listen, you guys can't hang up. I said, you've got to leave a message because what's going to happen is, is when you get old Jeb out in Kentucky, he's going to say, hey, Margo, Donald Trump, his office right here from New York City, they are on our answer machine asking us to vote for Donald. I tell you what, go, you, you know what, I, I, I'm going to tell my friend Zeb. Hey, Zeb, come on over to the house. You ain't never going to believe who is on my answer machine, man. And, dude, let me tell you something, Eric. They said people were coming out of the back hills voting for Trump who hadn't voted in 30, 40 years, right? It went from the percentage that they were getting, which was 17%, and that when I tweaked that thing, man, they hit penetration at 87%. So, 87%. so basically you're responsible for President Trump winning the election. So I want to... I can't say that, that, but I'll tell you what, they sure owe me a lot of credit for it, okay? So so then it's like five days before, oh, you're going to love this. Oh, you're, listen, our our black listening audience, they're going to love this, okay? So about five days before the election, the birther issue comes up, right? And she says to me, she says, well, you know, Listen, Eric, you need to go home and you need to write something because, you know, I just want to win. I said, but it's five days. I said, they're talking this further stuff. She's like, well, I don't care. It's five days. I want you to go home. I want you to write something, figure something out. I mean, I want to win. I go, okay, fine. I go home, so I go to Wikipedia. And at the time, I went straight to Wikipedia and I looked up exactly what I could find on on Obama, mm-hmm. Okay. And Obama's Wikipedia was totally different than it is today. After my book came out, they pulled it down, what he had up there, because he had approved 
everything that was on it. So if you would have taken the time to read everything that was on it, you would know 1,000%. Ain't no way the man was born on U.S. soil, okay? But anyhow, people don't read, okay? So what I did for my book was I literally copied everything from his Wikipedia as it sat that day and put it in my book and then did the credit in the bibliography for it, okay? Long of the short of it is, is this. You don't even have to look at that stuff. Let's just talk common sense, okay? They lynched black men in America, supposedly, air quotes here I'm doing, legally up until 1969, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, Obama's born on, let's, let's just say that he's born on U.S. soil and he's born in Hawaii. Here's the whole problem with that. First of all, his father's an African black man, okay? Dark as my shoes and I'm wearing black. Okay. Uh, uh, Obama's mother is white. Now, when he impregnates her based on Obama's own Wikipedia and dates and times, if you read, she's 17 years old. That's statutory rape. He's seven years older than her. Second of all, the hospital that he says he was born in in Hawaii wasn't even built until 1972. He's born 61. Okay. However, it took a year for him to produce the birth certificate. And in the book, you'll see my birth certificate. And then you'll see where the state of New Jersey made me get a different copy because they said my birth certificate, which was the one my parents gave me, which was the original one dated and signed at the hospital, which is in the book. Okay. They said, well, that's not a birth certificate. You have to get one from the state. It's nothing more than a way for them to raise some money. Okay. So I order it from the state of Indiana. It comes in in three days. It takes Obama a year. Why? They had to manufacture one. Okay. But the long and the short of it is, had Obama's father and mother gone to a hospital on U.S. soil, okay, and he's a black African, seven years older than her, and looking at the dates, they would have known that was statutory rape, okay? There's no way they walked into that hospital on U.S. soil in 61 and said, hey, we're going to name our son Barack Hussein Obama. Second of all, you've got a now sitting president. Those people who would have delivered him at the hospital that day would have been in their 60s next. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Um, okay, it seems like we lost him uh, in the middle of that. So let me see if I can... Uh, Re reconnect with him and then and we'll catch y'all on the other side okay guys so we're back uh like i said we we lost uh brother stevens for a minute um but he's back on so Continue with your story, my man. Okay, so the long, the long of the short of it is, is in, I believe it was like in 66 or 67, Harry Belafonte, who was like the highest paid entertainer back in that day, was uh, preparing for a show that I believe it was NBC, don't quote me on that, but one of the major networks was doing, and they had him singing with, I think, Petulia Clark or or. Dusty Springfield, I don't know, some white lady back then, right? 
And while they were filming, she reached over and she touched him on the arm. They shut down production, Eric. They threatened to kick him off the island. They threatened to, like, uh, shut everything down and not even allow it to go on air. So finally, after two days back and forth with New York, they said, okay, the two of them can sing with each other, but they can't even touch. Okay? Right. Yeah, I so think that was Petunia like Clark, six. but, uh, yeah, I think that was yeah, Petunia yeah. Clark, yeah. Right, right, right. That's like five, six years after we're talking about the birth of Obama. So had the two of them, you know, the father and the mother, you know, had they gone into hospital and said, we're going to name our son Barack Hussein Obama. Let me tell you something. In 61, that man would have been lynched. And I had this conversation one time with this with this uh, elderly gentleman who was Caucasian. And he must have been in his 70s or his 80s. And he looked at me and he says, Eric, let me tell you something. He said, not only would we have lynched the father, we would have lynched their parents, too. Okay? Yeah. I'm just saying. He said he was from Georgia. All right? So, but the point of the matter is, is we're talking U.S. soil here. And... This is a two-term sitting president, and never has one person come forward and said, I'm the doctor that delivered him. I'm the nurse that was there. I'm the register that was there. It would have been the talk of the uh, cafeteria that day. There's never been one person that has ever walked forward and said, oh, yeah, I was there the day he was birthed on U.S. soil. Okay. Now, what else is interesting is, is I actually have Eric and people could really find this stuff if they took the time to look. Okay. But they don't want to, they don't, the people don't want the truth, but I actually literally have a video clip of Obama in Kenya. Okay. Speaking to a live audience where he says, I'm the first president of the United States of America who was born in Kenya. I've seen it from his own lips. Okay. So anyway, I write a 50 page document. And I go and I turn it in and I put it in, I put it in really nice cellophane. I put it in folders and I marked one for um, uh, Steve Bannon and one for Kellyanne Conway. So when I go back the next day, I said, this is for Kellyanne. This is for Steve. Take it upstairs. So they take it upstairs. Right. All right. And I literally have in that doc, in the document that I write, I literally have a copy of my resume because they asked me for a copy of my resume as well. And the resume that I was using at the time is also published in the book. Okay. And it literally said on there, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, I had done the one document that I had a copyright on. It was for the revitalization of our nation's inner cities. Right. The very next day, Trump's on the campaign. He's in New Hampshire. And guess what I hear him say? We're going to do a revitalization of our inner cities. And I'm like, Whoa. Where did he get that word from? Right? Okay. So anyway, they then go to Washington. And when they get to Washington, it's like, oh, Hades is breaking loose. These people, are not they're not respecting the man. They don't know what the heck they're freaking doing. So I sit down and I start firing off these documents, right? So all of these documents, I, you know, I cellophane them and stuff like that. I write copyright on everything because I had said to her at one time, I said, why don't you just take me up there? She's like, I just can't get you up there, Eric. I just can't. I'm like, okay, fine. So um, what I then do is I call her up and I said, look, I know they're in Washington now. I said, but, you know, uh, do you still have access? She says, just, she says, it's you. Just send it through, you know, through the mail to the mailroom and, you know, don't get it. So what I then do is, is I write up some documents and I send one copy to Steve Bannon and another copy to Kellyanne. So both of those 
I, they get to the White House, and I check the FedEx thing, and they get there at like 11 o'clock in the morning, 11.30 in the morning on a Friday. All of a sudden, they come out on the news that day, and they said the White House is going dark. There's nothing going on, blah, 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 right? On Monday morning, Trump comes out, and he is literally stating verbatim what I stated in my documents. So I'm like, whoa, I guess I'm in now, right? And so literally for the entire four-year term of President Trump, I was an advisor stuck on the outside. So when it comes to the time uh, for them to you know, finally get out of office, when Bannon leaves, now I'm down to Kellyanne. I send the stuff into Kellyanne. Kellyanne's my contact, and my stuff still starts going through, right? Kellyanne then leaves, and I go, oh, well, let me try to West Wing. And I go to the West Wing, and my stuff still goes through. All of the, So for the whole four years. So, But remember, I own creative rights to this stuff. So it was never work for hire, and it was never paid for. So I freaking published it all, man, in Chapter 8. So in Chapter 8, Probably you can see like the first, I believe it like probably about like up until well, up until um, August of 2017. Any documents that I sent into the White House, they're all there. Are you talking about a guy who called it, man? I told him that Paul Ryan was a snake. He ended up out. I told him that uh, Mike Pence was a Judas. Okay. He turned out to be. I'm telling you, everything that I called was dead. Spot on. And and what's interesting is is when people were getting upset, uh, Sharpton and Jackson were upset about the question about are you a U.S. citizen being put on the census? Well, I'm the guy that wrote that too. And Bannon, where he made his mistake was he took it and he ran and he ran and got it put on the census, you know, uh, but publicly said that it was on there. Okay, what they were supposed to do is, is they were supposed to just add the question because I put together an entire formula that you'll see in the book where you can literally tell, you can tell by, see, here's the thing. Okay. Native Americans, they're here. Okay. Black people, you can track us all the way back to slavery. Okay. White people who came through Ellis Island, you can check them. Okay. But when you talk about illegal immigration back in 2017, before, you know, all of these border crossings and stuff like that. It's like it's very easy to tell somebody who's a U.S. citizen. You could do it by uh, by putting together the voting rolls and, 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 you know, just tracing back that along with the census. And if you tie the two of them together, you can tell if somebody's a U.S. citizen or not, man. Okay? So you'll see the exact formula in the book. And when I wrote it, and I can't tell you, man, but the day that I turned on, uh, the radio, I'm sorry, the TV, and they were literally debating it uh, in the Supreme Court. I was sitting there going, geez, man, this is this is just some literally insane stuff. And I am so thankful that uh, I have the proof. So there's not a claim that I make on anything that I do not have documentation for. But this book, you tell your readers, Buy the book, man, because I will tell you, it is the most amazing read. I, I got to tell you, Eric, when I, I hadn't myself seen the documents in like 28, 29 years. So when I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm literally using these documents to write the book, I'm sitting there going to myself, my God, who the heck was this guy? Right. <laughs> I understand. I it, is, it is flat some amazing stuff. So the problem that they have and the problem that Silicon Valley has is um, – 
You know, if you Google me now, uh, you know, there are some some areas of Google where you will see where they actually say that I'm Caucasian. And yeah, I saw that. You it was like yeah. in the Barnes and yeah. Noble listed you as Caucasian yeah. or something. Like that. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yep. Uh huh. Because they're trying to distort it. Because the problem is, is they never wanted it to be a black man who has created the most utilized application on the face of this earth, and that is GPS. I don't care if it's in your phone, your car, your laptop, your desktop, or any mode of transportation. Okay, uh, it all goes back to my GPS. And here's the beautiful thing about it, man. The computer guy who helped me with that technology and the transportation guy that helped me with that technology. Uh, Winston Jones with computers and, um, oh gosh, what the heck is his name? Uh, it'll come back to me. Um, Victor Jones, okay? And he was the transportation guy, okay? Both of them were black, okay? And then the guy who I took it to uh, to look it over, I called up one of my customers, and her husband was a was a retired colonel, Tuskegee Airman, by the name of William Broadwater. And Broadwater was an expert, and I didn't know at the time. I had to Google him after his death uh, when I was writing the book in 2017. But come to find out, he, he was a Congressional Gold Medal of Honor winner, which is the highest award that the White House gives to civilians and the government gives to civilians. But he had flown his last solo flight at age 83, okay, Tuskegee Airmen. He was an expert in engineering, technology, communications, and navigation. And that's the man who gave the go-ahead on the GPS, where for 30 years everybody thought it was Bill Gates. It was Broadwater who told me that everything that I had was absolutely spot on and would, in fact, work. So when I got it to Rockefeller's office, uh, they set me up based because they knew who I was based on the things that I had done in 79, you know, and also uh, my other contacts, uh, you know, in 83, 84, you know, through the Reagan administration. Because when the information letter came back from John Fisher, when you people see it in the book, you'll notice down the left side of it, you'll see all the Joint Chiefs of Staff, high brass and everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And all of these things were literally uh, blessings from God. When I talk to, uh, you'll love this, Eric, when I talk to the intellectuals, they'll go, oh, well, how did you, you know, where, how did you come up with the GPS? I mean, like, where did you study? Man, I went to Arizona State as an English major for three and a half years, got tired of going to school, broke and dropped out, okay? It was a gift from God. All of this stuff, man, was literally a gift from God. When you read this book and you see all the proof, you've got to know, you've got to know that this is God, man. I just happened to be the blessed guy who was the vehicle and did what I was supposed to do to bring everything forth. Yeah. And it, and it's, it sounds, and it seems like, you know, it's, 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 it's not just you and a bunch of, you know, documents trying to make your case. It's autobiographical too. So, People have got to get a sense of how you came to be this this free thinker and all this kind of stuff. But I want to get into before you know we run out of time. I want to get into okay. uh, some of the discussion because you brought up chapter eight. So I want to go back to uh, I think it's chapter two, and I'm going to read this quote. It says, "My father instilled in me." that it was my duty to vote and it was my right. 
He also was a Democrat, but encouraged me to vote man over party by judging the candidate by their merits and such. Now, from that, I would take it uh, that you're you're considered more of an independent voter. Is that right? Actually, right now, I'm sitting back, man. I'm not registered at all. Gotcha. I'm telling you, after after they stole this last election, and that's what happened, people. Okay. Um, let me tell you something. Uh, because I had advised Trump. I told him it's like you know what's happening. You know, what you need to do is you need to like you need to shut this down with some martial law because if you don't, I'm telling you, you know, and everybody who was advising him around him, you know, were telling him that he didn't have the legal power to do that. Uh, there's a there's a top shelf attorney, uh, Sidney Powell, and she's like constitutionally in every other way he had the power and he should have pulled the trigger and done it. And that's the only thing that I fault Trump for was that. He did not pull the trigger and literally uh, rein this stuff in. So, because, uh, well, you, you've heard, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Eric, but there are things where Biden was actually out there saying, man, let me tell you something. The way we're going to steal this election, when you see what we've got set up on how we're going to do this, man, it's crazy. So, the re- no, listen, man, I, I was going to say, so, you know, a lot of people hear, will hear that. And so, you know, and, and most people, when they hear you say that or anybody say it, they're going to think about January 6th and how people that supported the former president reacted and, and went to the Capitol. Let me, tell you, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. That ain't nothing but freaking three card money. That's smoke. Okay. All that is, is, is that that's that's smoke. OK, because, you know, Eric and I know we've lived long enough. We saw the Watts riots when Detroit burned, when cities burned to the ground, okay? We've seen enough of that. You want to talk about some kind of little insurrection, you know? And they had, like, one lady got shot, and they don't know if she got shot by a police officer or she got shot by somebody else and she died and this and that. Well, I'm sorry about that, okay? But however, January 6th, please, that ain't nothing. Absolutely, that that is political fodder, okay? What you have to understand is let me break this whole let me break this whole election thing down like this. Let's say that you're a black Baptist minister, okay, and you die. So your head deacon says, okay, uh, you know I've been trained, okay, and now you know I just got my ministerial stuff and I want to become pastor of the church. So the church says, well, we're going to select in six months who our new pastor is going to be. Okay. All right. By the way, you ever wonder why Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton have never had their own church? But that's another thought. Okay. So anyway, so what happens is you got another pastor and he moves into the neighborhood. Okay. But he doesn't really go out and help everybody out. But this head deacon who's in the church, man, he goes and he visits the sick and he buries people and he helps and he's doing everything that he can. He is everywhere, man. He visits Every person in the church directly goes to their house, asks if he can help them out, helps some of them get jobs, helps them have a better way of life. Now, six months goes by, and today's the day that they are now going to select who the minister is going to be. Is it going to be the new minister who moved into the neighborhood and stayed in his basement, or is it going to be the deacon who was out there visiting, 
and helping the sick, the poor, and everything else in every household and seeing what their needs are. They're going to select that man. So when Joe Biden sits there in his basement for six freaking months, okay, and you've got Trump who literally travels the entire country, creates more jobs in the black neighborhoods, okay, starts putting pride back into the hearts and bosoms of black men, okay, who are now becoming employed, releases blacks from prison who are put in prison, you know, based on trumped up marijuana charges or even legitimate marijuana charges. But all of a sudden, marijuana is legal. So if it's legal, you got to let them out. You got to let them out. That's in my book, too. That's in my writings to Trump as well. If marijuana is now legal, who's ever locked up for it, you got to let them out. Okay. so Trump does all of these things in the black community. Right. And you're going to tell me that Biden Who's, who, who signed off on the crime bill, who did everything he could do to shut down Clarence Thomas and taint him. And then he turns around and says, hey, man, listen, you know, the first replacement I'm going to put on the Supreme Court is going to be a black woman. So now forget about if you were going to do that and you knew that that was your own personal litmus test, why would you advertise it? Because it doesn't matter which black woman he picks. Guess what? Everybody's going to say, well, hey, man, the only reason she's on the courts is because she's black. Doesn't matter how good she is. Doesn't matter what her jurisprudence is. She's forever going to be tainted, just like Thomas is, by Biden, based on the Anita Hill, you know, the, the peewee hairs and the coat can. Okay? So that's what he did to Thomas. So now the first one that he's going to see to it before he his behind goes out the door he's going to see to it that yeah there's a black woman on the court but forever everybody will be going well the only reason she got there was because she's black doesn't matter how good she is and and, and, so, and, I, and, I, and I get that point but let me let me ask you this because you brought up some stats and sure. based on what you're saying what is it what why do the majority of black voters don't see that with Donald Trump. Why do you feel that we, actually, you know, people, people, actually, go, ahead, go ahead. Actually, actually, the numbers are skewed, my friend. The numbers are skewed. Okay? okay. You got to understand, just like these people stole the election, they also own the media. Okay. They also own the media. So they can produce whatever numbers they want to produce. Okay. And what's interesting is, is that I'm the guy that actually notified the White House, and and these documents I have, they'll come out in my next book, okay? But I'm the guy that actually uh, did the math to let them know that Trump actually pulled down about 80 million votes. I'm the guy with the 80 million number, first guy out there. Two, three days later, it's everywhere, okay? Now, but now they say, oh, uh, Biden got 80 million votes, and Trump only got like 60. Well, I think it's like 71 million or something like that. It's it's the most votes as anybody's gotten, even not even winning uh, for somebody that didn't, you know, supposedly didn't win the election. He got 71 million votes. And they're lying and they're lying on that number. You can do the math till the cows come home. Okay, I'm telling you, Trump got 80 million votes. Okay, I'm telling you that. Right. But anyway, the black vote that Trump got was somewhere up around 33, 34%. But you know what they report now? They say, oh, he only got 12%. Mm. 
you know, in some cases, you know, we believe that it was as low as eight. And what's Biden, and what's Biden say, hey, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. You freaking kidding me? Okay. And what's interesting is when you talk about, uh, you know, 130,000 Russian troops on the border, where are they on the border of? Ukraine. They're on the border. Yeah. And who had all of that dirt on them in Ukraine? You were talking about Hunter Biden. Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And who's Hunter Biden's son? You mean Joe? You mean dad? Yeah. But I, I get you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's the, who's the dad? Yeah. Yeah. Joe. Right. And the interesting thing about it is, is, is when Biden is making all of these deals with Ukraine and they're bringing in, in this money. And when the son is making all of this money with China and they're bringing in all this money. OK. At the time, who's the sitting president? Barack Obama. So you going to tell me that Barack let Joe have his son bring that kind of money into the deal and Barack didn't wet his beak? Well, it's funny on $400,000 how all of a sudden Barack, after he leaves the presidency, I think his house is worth how much in Martha's Vineyard? It's a Where lot. Where did he get his money from? I guess. You understand? You understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. So, you know, when the, the very first thing Barack Obama did was when there was the oil spill with BP, he called those people into the White House and he said, hey, man, y'all going to have to give us some, y'all going to have to give us some money you know, until that thing gets capped off. And I remember saying, he can't do that. That's freaking extortion. The Queen of England, there's no way she's going to go for it. Guess what? She freaking went for it. Then he goes over to General Motors and he says at General Motors, hey, you know, you guys are making too many cars. And the dude who's your number one guy He's out the door. I'm putting my own guy in here, and now on. You guys are only making like I don't know, eight, nine, ten, eleven cars, right? That's like, man, Eric. If you've got a basket of robins, and I walk in the door with one of my boys, and I say, "Hey, man, I don't care that you've been here for thirty years, man, selling your thirty-one flavors. There's ten of them that I don't like. So from the day forth, it's only twenty-one flavors." And you see my boy <laughs> Bubba here. He now runs this joint. Get the hell out of here, right? That's what he freaking did to General Motors. And I remember when we were kids growing up, they used to say, you know, hey, when a black person comes in, you know, to the house or whatever, or into the neighborhood, you know, there goes the neighborhood, right? So all these people, we get the first black president in, and, you know, and then there, there goes the White House, okay? Because this dude, all he did was extortion and everything else. He then is the first sitting president to go into federal prisons and talk with prisoners off camera and then release murderers, rapers, and robbers into the streets. And when you saw all of this stuff going on with these riots over the summers, man, they were busting these people around, you know? He allows them to crash the border. And the reason they allowed them to crash the border was because guess what? Those numbers they're talking about how many black people are voting for Democrats ain't what they're selling you, okay? So I don't know if you can remember this, but <laughs> it's too bad that I'm on air and I can't say this. So I'll abbreviate it, okay? I, I, I think there was a, a you know thing where they say, you know, well, I'm going to have to give me some new ends, okay? In other words, black people aren't voting for the Democratic Party the way they, you know, had been in the past. So we're going to have to find ourselves, you know, a second class. So what they do, Obama opened up the border and let the people come in, man. And let the people come in. 
So yeah. let me. So all, uh, well, all, all Biden is, is oh, Biden is nothing more than Obama's third term. Yeah, and I've, yeah. I've heard people say that, but let me. Well, that's a fact. But let me, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me see how I can ask the question real quick. Um, sure. If if I, what would be the media's interest or uh, corporate America's interest in not having Donald Trump as president. What, because a lot of people equate him with uh, an extension or a backlash uh, to Obama is an extension of white supremacy and all that. And a lot of people tie white supremacy in with corporate America. Now you're saying that's, that's more smoke too, Eric. Okay. That that whole, you know, oh, white supremacy, you know, you know, and all of this, you know, when he said, you know, that they're all nice people and stuff like that. That's not what he said. And that's not what he meant. Okay. You know, uh, with, you know, with the Charlotte thing, you know, right. Like, Charlotte, uh, yeah. You know, what he, what he was saying is, is it's like, you know, basically anybody can make the statement. And I personally believe it's true that most people, most people, Eric, okay are basically good human beings, okay? But in every group, you got some that are and some that ain't, okay? That's what he's saying. They're like, oh, no, he said that, you know, those people in Charlotte, you know, those, you know, those racist SOBs and this and that and the other. What we have to understand about the media, Matt, is their media and politicians, they're all interlinked, okay? That most of them are intermarried, Okay. So when when you're Nancy Pelosi's and you're Maxine Waters, okay, who went to Congress and uh, Pelosi comes from money in San Francisco. That's true. Um, Actually, from Maxine Baltimore, Waters, but yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and and uh, uh, yeah, I think the husband's from San Francisco, money or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and she was. Know? I think her dad yeah. was like the mayor of Baltimore or something like that. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, and. And what happens is, is like you take Maxine Water, you know, the, the founders set it up where you would leave the family farm or the general store, you know, and you would go to Congress for two years, four years, six years, you know, and then you would return, you know, back to the community. OK, well, you tell me, how is it that these people on a salary that's 200,000, 300, 400, whatever, 110,000, whatever, all of a sudden, these freaking Democrats, they're like multi mega millionaires so what happens is it behooves those in the media who they are married to to push forward their narrative because guess where the money's coming it's all going into one pot so you know when we drive our car through our gates and close ourselves off guess what we're safe we can afford to do whatever we want we can eat what we want we can wear what we want we can live where we live live want to live we can travel go vacation this that and the other while the rest of you lower class americans if we can make you even a lower lower class and convince you that we're going to send you a government check and get you to come off of those jobs that somebody like trump uh got you back into all of that self-pride that you were feeling as a black man all of a sudden goes, they're like, hey, man, we can't freaking have this. We got to send them money because they'll take the check and then they'll stay home. Okay? Uh, yes, you sir. Know? So, Brother and, Stevens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to cut you off there because it's, it's about that time okay. that, that for another hard break. So, very good, sir. So, to, 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 to tell people, name of the book again, 
where they can get it. Do you have a website? All that stuff. Okay. So the name of the book is uh, Literary Documentation, Book One, Stuck on the Outside, My Personal Quest to Become an Integral Part of the American Dream by Herbert Eric Stevens. The book is online, only available at Barnes and Noble, and it's also available on Amazon. If you do order the paperback version in color at 88.54, get it from Barnes and Noble because they use better grade paper than Amazon does. Okay, I do have no website, uh, and 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 I've got to tell you, uh, the most interesting thing about all of this, Eric, is the book's been out for 46 months now. Okay, and um, I'm going to say it. There's not one used copy available for sale anywhere on the face of the earth. And we're going to have to have uh, that as, actually, a, as, a, as the last word, Brother Stevens. All right, guys, we're going to catch right. y'all on the side. Brother Stevens, thank you so much for, uh, for, the, for this interview. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. All right, so we're back. And again, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I told I told you it's going to be interesting. Um, and disclaimer for the record, uh, he knows that I'm not a supporter of the former president. Uh, we talked about that off the air. Uh, but again, the gist of this show is to get people to speak on uh, their expertise or their beliefs and and get it out to the audience that I have and let you come with your own conclusions and hopefully that you will give some feedback uh, to this podcast and express your opinions one way or the other. Um, I think it was a good podcast. And I think he was able to articulate why he supports the former president and to, to pitch his book, which is again, stuck on the outside. And again, it's available in Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And one of the things I do want to touch on real quick, um, and it's not going to be my normal long commentary, uh, but you know, the one issue that he's bringing up in the book, or his dealings about, you know, even outside of uh, what's written in the book um, is just the issue that those of us in the community that have ideas that uh, want to present them, you know, don't always get a fair shake or these ideas might get stolen or, uh, you know, in his case, he's claiming copyright violations and patent violations and all that. Um, but there are other cases that people are kind of suffering in silence or trying to find a way. And, and at least this brother is trying to take his case public on that. And he's done it in the book and uh, off air, he's promised me there's going to be another one. So, um, I'm glad we're able to bring that issue out to a certain degree too. Um, so again, not the long commentary I normally do, but I hope that uh, 
it it would open people's minds to why people take positions and especially dealing with the former president uh that it's not just white people that feel that way there's some of us that feel that way too about uh president trump uh as far as supporting him and so um again um I hope you were entertained by that. And I hope that you get uh, get the gist of what he was saying, especially about uh, why he wrote the book. And if you're interested in the end copy, please go get it. Um, and then um, we'll, we'll continue to bring more guests like that uh, in the future that shows that we all don't think monolithic not monolithically that we're not just some collective mindset that all of us have our individual thoughts and whether we agree on them or not people are entitled to them and this podcast will give people the opportunity to express them um, whether i agree with it or not and we'll go from there until next time